welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 30, Cumans and Crusaders. We left off last time with this nightmare scenario facing the Byzantines. The empire under Alexios Komnenos was facing a terrible situation. They had managed to defeat the Normans with some well-placed bribes, some alliances, but now Komnenos was facing 80,000 Pechenegs and their allies on land while working with a Seljuk fleet. So you had the Seljuks from the sea, the Pechenegs from the land. It was the most serious threat Constantinople had faced in well over a century. But first, let's remind ourselves how we got here exactly. Twenty years ago at the Battle of Manzikert, the Byzantines suffered a catastrophic defeat. Soon after, various Turkic tribes began conquering and settling Byzantine cities around the regions in Anatolia, essentially without opposition. Eventually, this would lead to the loss of 78,000 square kilometers, or about 30,000 square miles, a huge swath of territory. So what did this mean for the Byzantines in practical terms? Well, Anatolia had always been the heart of their empire. Soldiers came from there. Food came from there. In fact, without this Anatolian heartland, the soldiers that made up the majority of Byzantine armies just weren't going to be there. And here, the empire had been so distracted with insurrections and fighting in the Balkans that it had given all that up without much of a fight. Now still remember, the Seljuks at this point were not completely united. The branch of the Seljuks who allied with the Pechenegs were an independent state based around the modern city of Izmir on the Aegean coast of Anatolia. Their leader was a man named Tsaka, Tsachas. It's a tri- tricky name. Anyway, so back to Alexios. Now, he knew at this point that he didn't have the soldiers to defend Constantinople from this kind of an onslaught. So he had to turn to his allies. Now, This circumstance brings us to a new tribe, a new group of people in our story, the Cumans. Now, who were these Cumans? In short, they were yet another Turkic steppe tribe, similar to the Pechenegs, though there's still a lot of debate about their precise ethnic origins. It's not super relevant to us, so I'm going to kind of refer to them this way. So they're another Turkic steppe tribe. Think of them like, yeah, some cousins of the Pechenegs. And like so many other tribes like them, including even Proto-Bulgarians, so they also had kind of similar origin stories, they came from these deep reaches of Central Asia. And like with all these tribes, we're not quite sure precisely where they're from in Central Asia. Just that womb of nations we've talked about in the past, the vast steppe that just seemed to sort of regurgitate these fearsome tribes every once in a while. In 1055, the Cumans appeared on the Russian steppe and on the doorstep of Europe 
for the first time. So not that far before where we are in our story now. And suddenly, just like with the Pechniks, with the Magyars, with all these groups, there was just this new force to be reckoned with on the European stage. In the early years, these Kumans fought endlessly with the Kievan Rus, weakening that state. So you may have noticed that the Rus were incredibly fearsome for a while towards the end of the First Bulgarian Empire. Remember, they sort of caused the destruction of the old heart of that empire and were a big part of it moving towards Macedonia. But we really haven't heard from them in a long time. And this is in part why. So the Cumans had been fighting the Rus, and they'd also been raiding Byzantine territories, as well as the territory of the Volga Bulgarians. I'm still planning at some point, once I've got a little free time, to make a whole special mini-series about the Volga Bulgarians. But that'll be for another time. So that's the basic rundown on the Cumans. That's who these guys are. They're another nomadic steppe tribe, and as, just like pretty much all the nomadic steppe tribes, they loved nothing more than raiding and uh, kind of setting up confederate states to extract tribute from conquered peoples. So again, just like these other steppe tribes, whenever they kind of got some power, what they would do is set up a steppe tribe confederation, and they weren't exactly too concerned with ruling over these confederated people, so they generally just sort of threatened them with violence, get them to pay taxes, and let them do what they liked. So if you've been paying, to, paying attention to Byzantine tactics for well, this entire podcast, you could probably guess how these Kumans are about to enter the story. Because just at this moment, they were just what Alexios needed. They, just like the Pechenegs, right, the Kumans were basically willing to fight for anyone if they paid them well enough. And, luckily for Alexios, what he had was enough, enough gold to buy the Kumans. So once the money had been received, 40,000 of them rode with all haste to aid him in his war against the Pechenegs. They arrived and met his forces in the spring of 1091. Along with some Vlachs, some Bulgarians who had been recruited into the army, Flemish and Turkish mercenaries, and 20,000 regular Byzantine troops, this army marched with the Cumans to meet the Pechenig force before their pincer attack with the Seljuks could come down on Constantinople. So as you can imagine, without these 40,000 Cumans, the Byzantines didn't stand a chance. But now with those allies, they had about 65,000 soldiers, compared to around 80,000 Pechenegs. So, you know, the, the, the Byzantines are still outnumbered, but they're not hideously outnumbered, right? We've seen ancient battles where one side has twice the soldiers of the other side and still loses, but, you know, it does even the odds. So 65 to 80 is not terrible. Now, these two armies, they come together and they meet at a town called Levunion, near where the Maritza River, which runs by Plovdiv, uh, through the Thracian plain, empties into the Aegean Sea. Now, when these two armies met, the Pechenegs seemed pretty unconcerned. They were quite confident in their ability to win this battle. Again, they had a massive army, one of the largest in this entire period. I mean, if you think back to those uh, Bulgarian battles uh, on, the, on the Black Sea coast that were the largest in medieval history, you had armies of maybe 90,000. So this is right up there with the biggest forces this era would ever see. So 
the Pachinks probably slept well in their beds that night. But the next morning, when the battle commenced, their complacency came back to haunt them. Because the Byzantine-led force, forces were absolutely savage in their attacks on that day of battle. Now, the Pechenegs had been moving like a steppe people. They'd been moving with their women, their children, their belongings in tow. And they were really, it seemed like, kind of preparing for a siege. They didn't expect a battle between siege armies. They thought they'd get to Constantinople, they'd set up a camp, they'd set up some siege barriers, and they'd wait for the Seljuks to arrive, and they'd mount some attacks on the city. But it didn't work out that way. And the result was a massacre. The Pechenegs fell into disarray almost immediately and were slaughtered nearly to a man, and that included their women and their children. Those who couldn't escape were killed and captured by Byzantine forces and were later forced to fight for the Byzantines and to settle some areas of Macedonia. Now, once again, Byzantine diplomacy had come to the rescue, and along with Byzantine military tactics, they'd brought the empire its greatest victory in living memory. In doing so, we also added a little bit more to the ethnic makeup of modern Bulgaria and Macedonia. As, you know, as I just mentioned, some of those Pechenegs settled in that area. Now, the life of St. Cyril the Filiot gives us the following quote about that battle. He said, quote, Hence the burlesque chanted by the Byzantines, all because of one day the Scythians never saw May, end quote. Now, it's a minor point about the Byzantines. They refer to pretty much all the steppe people as Scythians. Uh, it's an old Roman name for some tribes that lived way up above the, the Black Sea and the, uh, and the Caspian Sea. So a lot of the times you read any of these quotes, it doesn't matter if they're talking about Pechenegs or Cumans or really whoever, they're all Scythians to the Romans. So now the Pechenegs threat was gone. As a people, this really was the beginning of the end for the Pechenegs. I mean, they played a pretty big role in a lot of these battles over the last decades and centuries, right? The Pechenegs have always been uh, right there on the outskirts, coming in to raid, uh, allying with the Byzantines, fighting against the Byzantines. They've been all over the place, and they've really made their presence felt. But at this point, this battle, this slaughter uh, and capture of 80,000 Pechenegs and their women and children they could just never really fully recover from it. In fact, the last mention of them in all of recorded history is going to come just 77 years after this battle. So the Pechenegs don't even last another century. Ultimately, they assimilate into the Hungarians and the Bulgarians, as I alluded to before. They assimilate, they fade into the pages of history. Today, there's no trace of their language or culture. They vanish, like the Avars. You'll recall the early Proto-Bulgarians conquering and taking down the Avar Khanate. So yet again, we're seeing this contrast between the story of the Bulgarians and the story of so many other steppe tribes. These other steppe tribes just sort of melt into the ether. They just vanish into the other ethnic and national groups around Europe, but the Bulgars are that rare case of a steppe tribe that really made their mark. Their, the Proto-Bulgarian language may have almost vanished, but their culture and their identity survived. And 
So yeah, last reminder that the Pechenegs now do make a small portion of the modern Bulgarian population. Another reminder that the idea that people are sort of uh, ethnically pure in any way, right? Nationalists and ethno-nationalists love to talk about ethnic purity and all this, but there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. You know, modern Bulgarians are made up of you know, Thracian blood, Roman blood, uh, Cuman blood, Pechenig blood, Slavic blood, Proto-Bulgarian blood, all kinds of this, all mixed up, even Celts. I mean, you go to Bulgaria every once in a while, you'll see a redhead, a redhead who's born and raised here with parents that don't come from Ireland or anything else. It's because the Balkans are a tremendously ethnically diverse place and have been, as we see in this story, for a very long time. Okay, back to what's happening. Now, you'll remember it wasn't just the Pechenegs who were fighting against the Byzantines at this point. The Paulicians were also fighting with them. And, much like the Pechenegs, this signals a major defeat for the Paulicians. After this battle, and after this you know, series of wars, they also vanish as a significant force in the region. Now, they're going to reappear a few times in our story, but just never as major players as they sort of were in this war. The Bogomils will also come up again, but they also suffered a major setback with the loss in this war. So what does all this mean taken together? Well, Alexios rules the Balkans, more or less without opposition. I mean, the Serbs still have their kingdom off in the west. The Magyars and the Cumans still live up to the northwest and the north. You still have the Rus to the north. But in those core Byzantine Balkan territories, Bulgarian uprisings have been put down. All these other uprisings, religious groups, they've all been crushed. And now Alexios has a calm and peaceful Balkan peninsula at long last. It's been a very long time fighting. Now, so yeah, there's still enemies, but still, Alexios can kind of calm down, take a breather. But, okay, at this point, the close listeners of you are probably wondering, hold on, hold on, hold on, what happened to Tsachas and the Seljuks? You, they were going to send a navy to attack Constantinople. Well, you thought I forgot about them, but I didn't. So, while Alexios defeats the Pechenegs, he then turns around and decides, okay, now it's time to settle the score with the Seljuks. So, as so much happened in Bulgarian history, just like in Byzantine history, when you have one of these states with, you know, big eastern, western, north, south, all these different frontiers, so often the moment you obtain peace in one area, it just means you have to turn around and fight somewhere else. So, we, so we, you know, that battle of uh, Levonion was in 1092. So in that same year, the Byzantines also sent forces to retake the fortress on the island of Lesbos in the Aegean Sea. And after a three-month siege, the Byzantines are victorious, and that Tsachas has to retreat back to Izmir, to his home city, the base of his small state. On the way, while he's traveling, a Byzantine fleet captured, or captured, but meets and destroys most of his Seljuk fleet. But Tsachas still escapes yet again. Now, unsurprisingly, probably get an idea for his personality, he's pretty, let's say, tenacious. Alexios is not just going to give up and let this man escape yet again. So the next year, in 1093, Alexios gets the Sultan of Rum 
a man who is actually married to Tsatchas' daughter. So essentially his, uh, you know, their, I can't remember what the name of that particular family relationship is, but no, son-in-law, yeah. So Tsatchas' son-in-law invites Tsatchas to a banquet, and after being paid handsomely by the Byzantines, he has him killed. So again, the Byzantines kind of hold up their reputation for war, right? They, like their Roman ancestors, are tenacious. They don't give up that easily. They love bribing tribes to be their allies. And they're not, they're not totally against a little foul play to take care of their worst enemies. So now it's 1094. And well, remember when I said the Cumans probably weren't going to be super loyal allies just like the Pechenegs weren't? Well, am I smart or what? Because just three years after helping the Byzantines crush the Pechenegs, the Cumans essentially step right into the vacated role of steppe people who raid the Byzantine Empire. And, well, I'd love to see how that job interview went, right? So, and they mounted their own invasion to raid Byzantine territory. Now, what was different here is that along with them was a man who claimed to be the son of the deposed emperor Romanos IV Diogenes. Now, a Byzantine chronicle describes what happened with this Cuman invasion with Diogenes, or the supposed son of Diogenes, as follows. Quote, The army was summoned by letters from all parts of the empire, and when everything was set, ready, he... Okay, Lance, gotta retry that quote. Quote, The army was summoned by letters from all parts of the empire, and when everything was ready, he set out to fight the Cumans. At Anchialos, which he had reached with all his forces, he sent for his brother-in-law, the Caesar Nikephoros Melisenos, and George Paleogolus, and his nephew John Tarantius. They were dispatched at Berhoia, with instructions to maintain vigilant guard over that city and the neighboring districts. The army was then divided with the other generals as separate commanders, Dabatenos, George Eforbenos, and Constantine Humbertopoulos were to protect the mountain passes through the Hemus. Alexius went on to Chortarea, itself a pass in the area, and inspect the whole range to see if it's his previous orders had been faithfully carried out by the officers entrusted with the task. Where the fortifications were half-finished or incomplete, he insisted that things should be put right. The Cumans must be denied easy passage. So, the mountain passes were fortified, and Alexius used Anchialos, yes, that Anchialos, site of those enormous battles between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines, as his headquarters in the war against the Cumans. It was used for the same reason it had been used in many of those battles. It was a strong fortress, and it allowed the Byzantine dominance of the Black Sea to offer easy retreat, reinforcement, and communication with Constantinople. So when the Cumans crossed the Danube, Alexios felt prepared. He had ensured the protection of the mountain passes. However, unfortunately for him, the pretender to the throne which traveled with the Cumans brought some serious credibility, and thus these forces managed to convince some blocks to show them the way through the mountain passes. So, after all that preparation, all those fortifications, they got right through. 
They then managed to convince the commanders of several fortresses to just surrender. This is really showing the difference between your typical steppe tribe and a steppe tribe with a pretender to the throne at its head. So in other words, things are not exactly going to plan. And as a minor side note, well, you can imagine Alexios is probably getting really tired of defending the emperor and the empire from invasion and his throne from pretenders at this point. But looks like he's just going to be one of those emperors who has to fight all the time. But anyways, luckily for Alexios, he knew how to deal with steppe raiders like this. He had done this before. So the key was to attack them when they were vulnerable. Remember that victory against the Petrindings was in part because they had their women, their children, all their belongings in tow. Now, sadly for the population of the Balkans, including the Bulgarians, this meant that Alexius was going to wait until after the Cumans had raided to their heart's content and their baggage trains were weighed down with everything they could steal. So, after they had done this, he began by attacking one isolated group of 12,000 Cumans, who were in just this exact state, and as a result, the Byzantines defeated them soundly. This convinced some Cumans to strike a deal, but the rest were in no such mood. Alexius was going to have to defeat the majority of them. And he knew full well that if they were allowed to escape with all they'd stolen, just meant they'd be back again, and again, and again. If this menace was to end, if the Cumans were not going to fully replace the Pechenegs in their role as the perennial invaders and raiders of the empire, this had to end now. So Alexios returned to the mountain passes and used soldiers stationed there to kill or capture most of the rest of the Cumans as they tried to escape with their plunder. So that threat was ultimately taken care of. And what Alexios learned was what should have been obvious from the start, that the Balkan mountains were a far superior border to the Danube. Now, that policy was shown to be true. The empire may have effectively retaken old Bulgarian territory between the mountains and the Danube after they defeated the Pechenegs, but that territory was not going to be defended. In fact, that territory was going to be a sort of cheese in the mousetrap, right? Any of these nomadic peoples, they were going to be allowed, allowed to raid that territory and then stopped at the Balkan Mountains. Or, if they got through the Balkan Mountains, they were going to be allowed to raid Thrace and stopped as they tried to escape north through the Balkan Mountains. But either way, the Balkans, much of these, you know, these territories with towns and cities and farms and villages occupied by Bulgarians, they were going to suffer. They were going to face the full brunt of these attacks without much Byzantine protection. So these territories, if you think about it, they're in limbo in a way, right? They're part of the Byzantine Empire, but they're not really fully under Byzantine protection. And this is really making worse, exacerbating the depopulation trends I mentioned before. You remember I talked about how Bulgarian lands are being depopulated, that their economies are being hurt. It's not just because they're on the periphery of the Byzantine Empire, because there's not enough uh, kind of gold and silver in circulation to keep the economies going. It's because they are just not protected. As a part of this trend, the fortress at Preslav, the former Bulgarian capital, was finally 
decommissioned, and abandoned. Now, that's really, sadly, the end of Preslav as a really significant place. Today, if you go there, sadly, I haven't had the chance to go myself. It's just scattered ruins in a village nearby. And that begins here with the final Byzantine abandonment. We can't do it. We can't defend this anymore. Now, talking about these areas, trade with the Russians does pick up a bit at this time. You know, once the Cumans move a bit farther south, stop fighting the Kievan Rus, there's a little more wealth moving around, but not a lot of it sticks, and it doesn't make that much of a difference. Now, also, interestingly, around this time, we get a brief glimpse into Bulgarian life in Macedonia from the Bishop of Ohrid, a man named Theophylact. Now, just to warn you, this guy doesn't really take the Bulgarians that well. I mean, he doesn't speak kindly of them, let's say. But his observations are a rare and interesting glimpse into what was happening to Bulgarians during this time. Now, he said, quote, Having lived for years in the land of the Bulgarians, the bumpkin lifestyle is my daily companion. End quote. As he goes on, he complains that the Bulgarians stink of sheep and goat skin and were some, somewhere kind of halfway between civilized people and barbarians. This was because, well, they'd come into contact with the Byzantines for a long time, something he's, he kind of saw this as bringing them farther from their past of outright barbarism, and so they're not as bad as the Pechenegs, but they're still, of course, not civilized Byzantines. Now, he said as much when he stated that the Bulgarians were, quote, are no longer called Scythian or Barbarian, but may now be named and shown to be Christians, end quote. So it gives us this, you know, really kind of out of the blue glimpse about how at this moment are the Byzantines viewing Bulgaria, right? They've conquered Bulgaria for decades. You know, there were a few uprisings there, but things have quieted down in the last few years. So how are these Byzantines who are ruling Bulgarian lands viewing them? Well, this tells us they're a proper Christian people. They're viewed as a distinct nation, but as, again, yeah, kind of half-barbarians. Now, Theophylact, he acknowledged that Christianity had, you know, made the Bulgarians a people, with a, and that the Bulgarians had a scholarly tradition, established in part by Cyril and Methodius. But, you know, he, well, he respected the Cyrillic alphabet. He respected Old Church Slavonic, this language. He said, quote, a language which serves as a medium for the Christian liturgy becomes a sacred one. Hence, every people which acquires a sacred tongue is raised to the status of a nation, consecrated to the service of God with its own legitimate place and a particular mission within the family of Christendom. So, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it gives us another reminder of why the development of Cyrillic and Old Church Slavonic were so important. I mean, the Byzantines saw this as the things which made the Bulgarians a true Christian people. So we can only imagine that the Bulgarians must have probably had fairly similar opinions, that, that these kind of Christianizing tools were vital to their identity, and something, this is something we're going to talk about a lot in the future. Now, another summary of the Bulgarian was, quote, that Theophylact even coins the phrase barbaros okimene to refer to Bulgaria. And although this might accurately be translated as the barbarian world, it also appears to sum up the archbishop's position of grudging recognition for a region which was peripheral, 
geographically and culturally, to Byzantium. But also crucial to the empire's interests, a semi-barbarian hinterland which comprised Byzantine's, uh, Byzantium's Balkan frontier. So again, this is reminding us that Christianity, Cyrillic, and Old Church Slavonic were all critical to the survival of Bulgaria during this period of Byzantine domination. Okay, so now back to Alexios and his task of rebuilding the empire now that he's also defeated the Seljuks who fought against him. So now that the Balkans are secure, he turns his attention to the Seljuks. That's been done. So now it's time for him to look at the core Anatolian territories that had been taken by other Seljuks. So he begins to gather his forces. As a part of his strategy, he sends an embassy to Pope Urban II in 1095, asking for a mercenary force to aid him. As you can imagine, Byzantine forces were pretty exhausted and again, largely cut off from those Anatolian provinces which gave them so many soldiers. Well, quite famously, the Pope interpreted this request slightly differently and called very loudly for an entire army to be raised. Yes, that's right. It's finally time. The Crusades have arrived. Now, apparently, the Pope believed this could be a chance to reunite the Christian Church. And shockingly, he had apparently discussed this with Alexios, and Alexios had seemed receptive to the idea. So either Alexios wasn't nearly as dogmatic as previous emperors, or the Byzantine military situa situation was bad enough that he was entertaining the idea, because, well, if you're, say, listening to Robin Pearson's uh, Byzantine History podcast or follow Byzantine history at all, you'll know that every time you have the slightest suggestion of the Byzantines kind of reuniting with uh, the Catholics and uh, reuniting Christianity, uh, the Byzantines are very, very, very against the idea. So whatever factors led to this, you know, Pope Urban II was really encouraged. Alexius had won the Balkans, but he still had a lot of work to do. And the Pope made this impassioned plea to French noblemen and knights and others to take up arms, to go fight for the Byzantines. Well, not exactly. So he has this call, but before uh, they can get their act together, before the French noblemen in particular, a fanatical priest named Peter the Hermit, he decides he's going to gather armies of peasants and kind of lesser nobles, and they're going to go themselves on crusade. So he does. And this army makes its way through Hungary and the Balkans, pillaging the food it needs, and, let's say, not exactly endearing itself to the locals. When the army finally shows up at the walls of Constantinople, Alexios is horrified. He, he sent for a mercenary force, and now there's this unruly, massive army of peasants. He doesn't know what to do with them, so he sends them across the Bosphorus as quickly as possible. Once they're in Anatolia, they split into several groups and sort of move around, continuing to pillage the countryside as they go. Well, the Seljuks massacre these groups, one by one. And within a year, this people's crusade is gone, slaughtered, wiped off the face of the earth. Next time, we'll hear what happened when the next crusader army came to Constantinople. 
The question hanging in the air is now whether Alexios is going to be able to continue his string of good luck. Can he work with these crusaders? Can he push back the Seljuks? And what about the Bulgarians? What's going to be their role in all of this? Well, you'll have to wait to find out. This episode was written by me, Eric Halsey, produced by Lance Nelson, and with research help by Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music, as always, is written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook, write us a review on iTunes, all that good stuff. Check out Bulgaria now to hear more about what is happening in Bulgaria today. I just did a guest uh, hosting an episode just last week, so in the next little while you'll be able to hear that. And yeah, check us all, check us out in all the usual places and pledge on Patreon. Patreon's doing great. It's making a huge difference. That's why I'm able to do two episodes this month. It's only because of those Patreon supporters that I can kind of pay myself to carve the time out of my schedule to really, really make two solid episodes in a month. So all you regular listeners, thank those Patreon supporters and join them if you can. So in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck.